At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, March the 7th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show on what happens to be my birthday. A brand new broadcast week here on the program. Glad to have each and every one of you joining us. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's every weekday. It's also available if you can't listen live. There's a podcast. Around the clock, on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your needs related to the program right there. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us if you would, maybe a little birthday gift. Give us a follow. Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Guy P. Benson, my personal accounts on Twitter and Instagram. If you don't know me and you're kind of new to the program, a special shout out and welcome to you. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report the panel tonight with Brett Baer anchoring. I'll be flanked by Britt Hume and Mara Eliason. Looking forward to that conversation in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Time Fox News Channel. And I also host this fine program on a daily basis. And we have some help today, a great lineup of guests, as we so often do. Later this hour, Katie Pavlich, my pal, good friend and my colleague twice over at Town Hall and Fox News. She's going to be here. Joey Jones in the next hour talking about Ukraine Military tactics, morale, we'll get to that in a moment, but looking forward to that conversation with Joey. We will also go live to Ukraine. Mike Tobin, foreign correspondent for Fox News, he will be here, and we will ask him what he is seeing, what he is hearing with his own eyes and ears on the ground. In our final hour, Molly Hemingway will be our guest. A lot to get to with her. I might play some of the audio that emerged yesterday from Andrew Cuomo the disgraced, resigned governor of New York, who I guess believes he can make a political comeback. And he went to a church to, I guess, start that comeback. Not so much atoning for his sins, but pretending they didn't really exist. Perhaps we'll get some of her reaction to that. Also, I have to tell you, you're going to want to stay tuned to the very end of the show today. Because even though it's a Monday, which is not necessarily... Uh, the flashiest or most exciting day of the week that people really look forward to. I mean, let's just be honest. It's real talk, real talk here on the Guy Benson Show. But even though it is Monday, that will not dampen the spirit of our birthday celebration. We have with us in studio to help me celebrate my birthday um, a lot of ice cream that has been sent to us due to a controversy. All right, this is not just, you know, someone saying, hey, uh, you like ice cream. Here's some ice cream. No, no. This goes to a major social media flap involving ice cream. We addressed it here on the air, and that's why some ice cream was sent to us. We will explain it all and do some taste testing at the end of the show during 
our final segment, which we call The Home Stretch. All right, as we get going, let's bring you a Fox News alert, as we always do. Stats, COVID cases, 79.1 million cases confirmed in the United States, all in over the course of this pandemic. I have to tell you, at some point, I am hopeful, some point soon, we're going to stop doing these daily updates. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I'm just planting that flag. My intention is to not bring you the stats every day in perpetuity, because I have believed for a while that the true emergency portion of this pandemic is long past. The problem is the death toll is still substantial enough that I don't want to stop telling you about it because it still exists. And it's very painful for a lot of people. That doesn't mean that we should make irrational decisions on our public policy. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be really weighing cost-benefit analysis in a smart way. I guess analyses across a variety of topics and related policies, right? Our risk assessment has been poor, I would say, collectively. So just uh, just flagging that for you. But for now, the death toll, Americans who've died with or of COVID over these last two years, now 957,427. The Dow, along with the rest of the markets up in New York, getting rocked today. Dow currently down 695 points to 32,919. We'll keep an eye on that, but it's been sliding basically throughout the entire day. I want to begin with the latest out of Ukraine, where there were some really horrifying images over the weekend. The Russians have gotten really brutal, bombing civilians, civilian buildings, mortar fire, people dying in the streets. There's an intensification, if you will, of some of the Russian shelling. But I am, perhaps counterintuitively, based on what I just said, a little bit hopeful about the situation overall because it does seem like the Russians are stuck in a lot of ways and stymied in some ways and losing, I would say, in some ways which is not to make the mistake of crossing over into triumphalism or pretending like Russia's cooked and this thing's over and, you know, glorious Ukraine will rise up against the occupier and win. I'm very much hopeful that that will happen. I'm rooting very much for that outcome. The Russians still have a huge amount of resources and seemingly bottomless ruthlessness as well, which is pretty sickening to watch. And they've made some progress coming out of the south, of course, coming from the east and even from the north. Right. To say that they have made no progress and they're getting beaten back everywhere. This is not true. I don't want to mislead you on that front. However, there are some signs that I think are very interesting. Tim Mack is an American journalist. He works at NPR. He's been giving updates every day. And I check them every day. And here's how he began his series of tweets this morning, right around 8 a.m. Eastern time. Good morning from Ukraine to our U.S. readers. Kiev remains under Ukrainian control. I'll remind you briefly, we are almost two weeks into this. I'm not sure there were a lot of people who expected Kiev to still be under Ukrainian control or certainly the skies to be contested at worst. Almost two weeks in, but that's where we are. Zelensky is still alive. 
The government is still in charge. The people of Ukraine are still standing up. The Russians are still facing setbacks. This is extraordinary. So he writes, Kiev remains under Ukrainian control. Not only that, a senior U.S. defense official said Russian forces do not appear to have made significant progress, despite committing nearly 95 percent of the forces they had staged. So they're sending these people in. Now, a lot of them are young conscripts who aren't well trained. We know a fair number of them have just surrendered on the spot. There are reports that there are troops in Belarus, a Russian ally, that are refusing to fight. And as a result, a general has tendered his resignation. This is not going according to plan, obviously, from Putin's perspective. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Russians are now recruiting sort of military-aged, able-bodied men and fighters from outside of the country, like from Syria, to come help them try to achieve some of the military objectives that the Russian military has been unable to achieve in more than a week and a half. I don't think you show up in Syria hat in hand if you're the Russians, if things are going well. That is one of the signs, again, to my amateur eyes, that is a sign of desperation. Let me read to you also from a New York Times dispatch. There's a few interesting things that I want to share here at the outset of the show. This is from the Times today. For three days, quoting now, Russian forces had fought to take Mikolaev, which is the name of a city. I hope I'm saying it somewhat correctly. But by Sunday, Ukrainian troops had driven them back from the city limits and retaken the airport, halting the Russian advance along the Black Sea, at least temporarily. By Monday morning, Russian forces had resumed their attack. Russia's failure to seize the city and other cities quickly, as President Vladimir Putin of Russia appears to have intended, is largely a function of its military's faltering performance. Russian forces have suffered from logistical snafus, baffling tactical decisions, and low morale. But it is the fierce and, according to many analysts, unexpectedly capable defense by Ukrainian forces who are significantly outgunned that has largely stalled the Russian advance and, for now, prevented that city from falling into Russian hands. That's one snapshot in one place, but it's part of sort of a kaleidoscope of snapshots, right, sort of maybe a a tapestry that we're starting to watch develop day after day after day where the Russians are not meeting their goals, which is even if they prevail militarily in the longer term, which they might, it's still remarkable and inspiring to watch. And the fact that you have... For example, everyone's been talking about that convoy, right, of tanks, armored vehicles, 40 miles long. Questions, why aren't they bombing it? What's happening there? Well, it seems that they are, in some cases, that convoy literally stuck in the mud as the ground thaws, out of fuel, running out of food. There are reports that Russian soldiers don't want to stay in some of these vehicles because they're afraid of getting attacked and just being sitting ducks. Do the Russians have the logistical wherewithal and competence to refuel and even feed their people? That is an open question right now. 
And then there's this from the Times of London. Spies in Russia's infamous security apparatus were kept in the dark about President Putin's plan to invade Ukraine, according to a whistleblower. So this whistleblower who is uh, purportedly within the FSB, which is one of their intelligence agencies, has written something publicly. And this whistleblower has described the war as, quote, a total failure that could be compared only to the collapse of Nazi Germany. A report thought to be by an analyst in the FSB, successor agency to the KGB, said that the Russian dead could already number 10,000. Think about that. I don't know if that's a verifiable number in this haze of war right now. I think a lot of the death toll numbers, civilians, members of the military, I think it's hazy. I think you have both sides sort of spinning for various reasons. But this person at least presenting himself as a Russian official is saying it could be 10,000 Russian dead already in a war that they are really trying to avoid the Russian public even knowing about, certainly knowing the truth about. This report said that the FSB was being blamed internally for the failure of the invasion, but had been given no warning of it and was unprepared to deal with the effects of crippling sanctions. So we might be at the circular firing squad finger pointing portion of this war from a Russian perspective. Now, I had read that this report, this missive, was shown to former FSB officials who no longer obviously work in Russia, and they believe that it's authentic. They say this has the hallmarks of being from one of their former colleagues. I don't know. I do want to remain and retain a sense of healthy skepticism about all of this stuff because misinformation and just information generally is a very significant weapon in war. And I would say the Ukrainians are winning the information battle in a rout so far. Not just because they're much more sympathetic for all the obvious reasons. The Russians are terrible at it. The propaganda they're putting out is laughably ham-handed. Not at all believable. And that actually goes to another point that I can return to, desperation. It's not just some signs of desperation on the battlefield and on the front lines. There are signs of desperation back at home. For the Russian regime. I will explain what I mean by that when we come back. A lot to get to Russia, Ukraine, and a lot more. There's an Iran update that I need you to hear. That's later in the show. We'll get to domestic politics as well. Loaded up, brand new week. Yes, it's my birthday as well. So a special edition, we'll call it that, of the Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We will not forgive the destroyed houses. We will not forgive the missile that our air defense shot down over Okmadi today. And more than 500 other such missiles that hit our land all over Ukraine. Hit our people and children. We will not forgive the shooting of unarmed people. 
destruction of our infrastructure. We will not forgive. I'm Guy Benson. That was the voice of President Zelensky in Ukraine. And clearly not in a forgiving mood. And how could he be? Neither are the people of Ukraine, as the Russians are learning. Even in one of the cities that they have taken, huge demonstrations in the streets, extremely courageous. It doesn't really look like an occupation. They don't have the personnel to occupy a country. This isn't going well for them. The Pentagon pointing out today what I read to you a moment ago from the New York Times. The Russians have not made major or noteworthy progress in days in Ukraine. Could they be getting bogged down in something of a quagmire with a furious local population eager to kill as many of them as possible? Not great. Fox News alert as we are now back. I wanted to make a point about some of the desperation back home, the desperate signs from the Russian government. I will continue that thought coming up in a bit. But first, I mentioned the Pentagon. John Kirby is briefing right now, Pentagon spokesman. He's taking questions from our colleague, Jen Griffin. Let's listen live. This is the Pentagon right now. We, uh, we certainly see what's in the open press that you see uh, about anecdotal evidence that some soldiers uh, – are flagging in their morale. We have also picked up other indications as well uh, on our own that uh, that morale um, uh, continues to be um, a, a problem for for many of the Russian forces, particularly uh, up in the north and the, and the east. Um, it is not clear to us that all of the soldiers that Russia has put into Ukraine realized that that's what they were doing, that they we're actually going to invade Ukraine. It's not clear to us that they had full visibility on the mission that which they were being assigned. And again, if that convoy was a resupply convoy and um, not really armored vehicles, where were those columns of tanks that were supposed to encircle Kiev? Were they sent elsewhere? Yeah, I don't know. That's a better question for the Russian Ministry of Defense. We don't have perfect visibility in terms of what they're what they're moving and and what alternative routes they might have taken. And I don't want to leave you with the idea that we know perfectly what each and every vehicle is in there. It, it looks to be like our assessment is that it's largely meant for resupply, but I can't rule out that there aren't combat vehicles. It's a very, very long convoy. We don't even know if it's all – we can't even say that, that it's all one convoy and not several, but it does remain – as our best assessment is it remains stalled. Fadi. Thank you, John. So when the – So that's basically – just fortifying some of the points that I made in the opening monologue, just live there from the Pentagon, John Kirby briefing – those reporters, morale of the Russian forces being one of those key questions at the moment. We'll talk to Joey Jones about that coming up later. But next, Katie Pavlich is here talking about energy, oil, and the Biden administration's crazy position on that. She's next. It's The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back. Glad to have you here. 
I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. We'll get to our guests here in just a second. But I just want to finish my thought on the desperation that I'm seeing from Russia, not just in Ukraine, but at home. We talked about the fact that they're reportedly, according to the journal, trying to recruit Syrians to come do some of their fighting for them. I guess their own fighting force can't hack it to a large extent. The propaganda they've attempted, you know, they tried to hire people to pretend to be Ukrainians, thanking the Russians for liberating them. And it was just so poorly done, no one bought it. Then you're seeing laws being passed on the fly by the rubber stamp so-called parliament in Moscow, making it a crime to protest against this war, punishable by a decade and a half in prison. And yet tens of thousands of people are defying that anyway and showing up in the streets because the regime really doesn't want people to even know that the war is happening, let alone how badly it's been going for them. So they're clamping down not on the population in Ukraine, which they cannot control, on their own people. That is not the sign of a confident regime that believes things are going well. There are videos going viral of police officers or agents of the state stopping people on the street in Russia demanding to see their cell phones, to see what they've been texting or emailing about. And if they don't comply, they get arrested and dragged away. That is a closed society that is not confident. That is a scared bullying authoritarian regime that reeks of desperation. Last point, some of these Russian celebrities, famous people who have TV shows, athletes and others, musicians who are speaking out against the war, they are being canceled. Right, like a comedian show just went away overnight because of what he said about the war. Concerts canceled. Other celebrities reportedly fleeing Russia. This is not what you do when you feel like you're on the right side of history and things are going well, when you're trying to denazify another country or whatever. And for the first time in this conflict, there are now at least some demands being made by the Russians that are their terms for a ceasefire. They're totally unacceptable. They're crazy. The Ukrainians aren't agreeing to them and they shouldn't. It's basically acknowledging that parts of Ukraine are now Russia and swearing that they'll never join NATO or the EU or anything like that. Not acceptable. They, of course, should say no, and they have said no. Zelensky saying pound sand. But it's at least something of maybe a climb down from Putin. As opposed to saying we're going to take over this whole country, which is run by Nazis and it's a peacekeeping mission, and we're going until the very end. The fact that they're at least making some demands, no matter how ridiculous, might be something of a concession toward reality? I don't know. I'm hopeful, even as these reports fly, that internally there are a lot of divisions now at the top. Paranoia. There are rumors. Do the Americans in the West have a spy close to Putin? Are there intelligence officers feeding intel to the Ukrainians to help them? I mean... I don't think this is what Putin had envisioned, and he can blame one person, himself. With that, let's get to our first guest here on the show today. It's our friend and colleague, Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com, 
Fox News contributor. Katie, great to have you back. Great to be here, especially on your birthday. So for your radio birthday party, I'm grateful to be invited as a guest. Happy birthday. Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Katie. And uh, I'm very happy to have you here as part of the birthday show. And I want to talk specifically, feel free, by the way, to react to anything that you just heard there in that little mini monologue leading up to me introducing you. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff playing out, not just on the ground in Ukraine, but on the ground in Russia. That would be, I think, pretty alarming stuff for the Kremlin and for that regime. I also want to get, though, to the issue of energy and oil, because it feels like the biggest weapon that the West has when it comes to sanctions and really crippling the Russians, more so than they already are economically. And I mean, it is having a bite. It is vastly disrupting life in Russia. Uh, People are feeling it. But we haven't so far gone the route of really punishing, uh, punishing them rather by sanctioning their oil and going after that huge source of their national wealth. And I just wonder what you think of that and And what you make of some of these gyrations from the Biden administration trying to explain why that's the case while sticking dogmatically to this insistence that we shouldn't increase production here at home, which seems crazy. It's crazy, and it's counter to their own self-proclaimed clean energy agenda. So American production of oil and gas is literally much cleaner than the production of Russian gas because we have higher standards. Uh, and more and better technology to get oil out of the ground, get gas out of the ground in a, a safer, cleaner way. That's the first thing. Uh, the next thing is that the White House keeps making this argument that we can't, we shouldn't sanction Russian oil uh, because it will increase gas prices for Americans here at home, and they're trying to mitigate that. Okay, but then on the other hand, they say, well, we also can't sanction. We're not going to sanction Russian oil because it's a small portion of what we actually import. So which one is it? It either is a it either has a big impact on Americans because we're importing enough Russian oil that it upsets the marketplace or it's not that big of a deal. So what's the problem with sanctioning it anyway and putting the screws to uh, the Russian economy in a way that really is funding and continuing to fund this war chest and bombing of innocent civilians? Then, of course, you have now instead of the White House looking to uh, American domestic production. They're claiming that there are 9,000 permits available and that oil companies are the ones who are uh, drilling. That's not true. The, the Bureau of Land Management has to. It also just doesn't make sense. Single new land. Well, it doesn't make sense, but it's also not true. So they keep blaming domestic producers for not producing enough, implying they can just turn on a switch when the, the, the Bureau of Land Management actually has to approve individual permits for new exploration and wells, which they are not doing. So now Joe Biden is looking around the world and saying, where can we get our oil? And they're entertaining getting oil from Iran. They're entertaining getting oil from Venezuela in a country where we don't even technically recognize the the president who is running the show with the Maduro regime in Venezuela, who, by the way, is also an ally to Russia. Russia has yes. helped Venezuela evade sanctions over the years. So we are literally funding our adversaries and they're willing to open up the door for oil, but they're not willing to, to increase domestic production here because they're so dedicated to this idea of being able to say that they're in this energy transition to an alternative source of energy 
But we're in an emergency here because they've had this ideology and they pushed energy aside as a national security issue. For years. They now have put themselves in a corner, right? Whereas if they sanction Russian oil, the prices will go up for Americans. Um, And now they're stuck with looking around the world for oil rather than taking advantage of the technology that we have here in America to be energy. Oh, and the resources. The resources that we have in the ground here in this country where we can be energy independent. We were. Then a choice was made to move away from that. And they can say, well, you know, this wouldn't really fix everything in the short term. This would be a much longer term process. I mean, that's all fine. But as I've been pointing out, that was also (laughs) true in the Obama years. Right. They made the same excuses during the last Democratic administration. And that stuff would come in handy now. Right. This would be that hypothetical future is today. And because of their previous failures, we're in this boat. And now they're making the same excuses again. And I think a point that you just made there, Katie, is a really noteworthy one. They clearly want oil and the cost of oil and fossil fuels to come down because it's very painful for American consumers. And it's going up and up and up to, you know, rates. I mean, some of the numbers out in California are eye-popping. And they're willing, apparently, to go hat in hand to Saudi Arabia for more and some of the, you know, OPEC cartel members. They're willing to engage in, you know, rapprochement with Venezuela and the communist regime down there that is, you know, deeply evil and, yes, allied with the Russians. They're apparently, Pete Buttigieg said the other day that it is absolutely on the table to look to get Iranian oil into the global market to help bring down costs. I don't understand just like to go with the whole science thing here. What's the difference? If we are, if we are going to be burning fossil fuels in this country, and the oil originates in Saudi or Iran or Venezuela, we're still consuming those fossil fuels. It, it's not produced right. on American land or American territory, which means, it, as you pointed out, it's probably dirtier in its production. Mm-hmm. But it, we would still be burning that oil. It seems like it doesn't make, again, logical sense to me why we would say we're not going to do it here, but let's go to some of the worst regimes around the world and beg them for more. Environmentally, right, it doesn't make it's sense. It's not logical. It's ideological. And it, the White House is approaching this from two two directions. I don't think they actually mind that prices are going up because you've had Jen Psaki repeatedly say that they want to get Americans off of oil and gas and into uh, alternative forms of energy. So they believe that the higher the prices, the less oil and gas people use, and that's a win for their green lobby, which, by the way, is actually supported by a lot of foreign Russian money to destroy the domestic oil production in America so that Russia can produce more. Um, And by the way, just to jump in, Katie, just just to underscore that point, I remember, and I'm sure you do too, back when Barack Obama, this has been the mentality for a while within the Democratic Party. When he was running for president in the Democratic primary, like 07, 08, you'll remember his famous discussion, I believe it was with the the editorial board of the San Francisco Chronicle bragging that under these policies, energy prices for Americans would, quote, necessarily skyrocket. And he viewed that as a feature, not a bug. Yep. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what's happening um, with this situation, because if they actually cared about domestic uh, prices going down and they're worried about the political impact, right, because gas prices are high. It's not good for President Joe Biden's approval rating. But in terms of their ideology, 
they really believe that the higher the prices, the better, because less of this evil oil and gas that they claim that they don't want people using. And, you know, that means they're using less of it. And they can now transition to their Green New Deal idea of how they think that we should consume energy in this country. But let's not, you know, it's, people call it clean energy. They call it green energy. You can't make a windmill in China without oil and gas. You can't get it to the United States without that. Lithium batteries are not green or clean. So it just is all about how you determine what energy is doing in terms of pollution. For this administration, they think emissions is the gold standard for what they constitute causing climate change. But there's a whole lot of emission that goes into making what they claim is clean and green energy, and it's actually not. So it's not about necessarily just oil and gas. It's about transitioning to other companies that people like the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, happen to have a very interesting stake in, uh, you know, because they think that they can make money off of it. So it's all an interesting prospect. But right now, well, they have put the United States into a very bad national security position by refusing to allow domestic energy production here because the benefit of domestic energy production and independence, you don't have to care about what's happening thousands and thousands of miles away when it comes to the impact on your life. Since you mentioned Secretary Granholm, a clip of her is going viral again, sort of been resurfaced. It was from this past fall. It was pretty cringeworthy when she said it. She was on CNBC or Bloomberg, I believe, doing an interview about energy. And she burst into laughter at the idea, the notion of increasing domestic production of energy resources here in the United States. I think in retrospect, given what's happening in the world and in this country right now, it looks even worse. This is a cabinet secretary in this administration just a few months ago. Cut 20. Here's the flashback. What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Would that I had the magic wand on this. As you know, of course, uh, oil is a global market. It is controlled by a cartel. That cartel is called OPEC. And they made a decision yesterday that they were not going to increase beyond what they were already planning. So a big belly laugh there. And she was actually sort of rocking back and forth. She sounded uh, she thought it was so hilarious, sort of uproarious laughter there from Granholm saying, oh, yeah, we don't have the magic wand uh, you know, how ridiculous that's hilarious to suggest that we could increase production here at home, except, I mean, look, I'm not naive, Katie, neither are you. We know that nothing is as easy as waving a wand, but we have tools at our disposal that yeah. if marshaled properly would amount to something approaching a magic wand and they are choosing not to let us wave it. And I feel like that's not well, really that, a laughing we, matter. Well, we did it. This is why her, her laughing is laughable. The United States did it under Trump. They became yep. independent. And it's amazing how the Biden administration will send Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, to write a letter to OPEC begging practically that they pump more oil. So if they can write letters to OPEC, why can't they meet with domestic energy uh, producers and ask them what they might need from the bureaucracy to make this run a little more quickly? Do they need permits to be approved faster? Do they need more room for for energy exploration? What kind of process at the Interior Department is slowing this down? Because I guarantee you there's a very long list of them, and they're using them to, again, promote this energy transition rather than promoting domestic energy production of gas and oil. And as you said, the same world. It's all oil. So why is it that it's okay to get it from Venezuela or Iran or Russia but not here? 
Katie Pavlich, townhall.com, Fox News, colleagues twice over, also friends. Birthday edition here of the show. Really appreciate you joining us, Katie. Let's do it again soon. Thanks for having me. Happy birthday. Thank you. You bet. We will step aside. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Boom, sir. Every city, every village is dangerous now. I am so sad. I am very angry. And, you know, I am, like, I'm destroyed. I leave my house. I leave my friends. I leave my family, my mom. And because of my daughters, I run away. It's the Guy Benson Show, a humanitarian tragedy unfolding in Ukraine with so many refugees leaving the country. Many, of course, are staying to fight. Some people are, in fact, coming back to Ukraine or heading into Ukraine to fight the Russians. But families, children, I saw a photo at a train station just packed with people desperate to get out, to save their families, save their children, get to safety in Poland or other neighboring countries. Here's another refugee, cut seven. They could not sleep. They are on edge when they hear the siren. I didn't really want to leave home, but my children do not sleep at all, and I decided to take them away. So maybe they'll be able to sleep at last. I was at an event over the weekend in Florida speaking. One of the other speakers was supposed to be Congresswoman Victoria Sparts of Indiana, a Republican who was born in Ukraine. She couldn't come. She had to go to that region sort of at the last minute, but she sent with an apology a video that she had received from Ukraine. It was Ukrainian city. And it looked like something out of a horror film, something post-apocalyptic. Buildings on fire, cars on fire. You hear a woman screaming for help. And you could hear a pin drop in the ballroom. Some people in tears watching this. It's real. It's not just some geopolitical game. It's evil what's happening. The Russians are doing it. This is why I've been rooting hard for them to lose. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our middle out of three hours between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Welcome in. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Guy Benson Show. And the podcast is free of charge every single day on demand. Not one penny for any of you. And that continues to grow, so we appreciate Any of you who listen, of course, live, especially on our great affiliates, many ways to listen live. And if you can't, the podcast is there for that. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight on the panel in the 6 p.m. hour, usually around 6.40 or shortly thereafter. That's on Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer and company this evening. Hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we get going here. And just a brutal day on Wall Street with everything happening in the world and the price of oil Jumping up, the Dow closes the day down roughly 800 points, closing at 32,817. 
With us now is Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor. He's host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation, also host of the podcast, Proud American. Joey, welcome back to the show. Hey, man. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm eager to have a conversation with you about a couple different things here as you watch and assess what's happening in Ukraine. This just was tweeted last evening by... Jack, uh, Jackie Heinrich, one of our colleagues here at Fox, quoting Lucas Tomlinson, another one of our colleagues, a new U.S. intelligence assessment says more than 4,500 Russian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine since the war began over 10 days ago. And there was another piece that I saw and read from earlier where there's at least someone purporting to be a Russian whistleblower who was wondering if the death toll among Russians could be up to 10,000 at this point already. I think it's hard to pin down what the exact number is. We know that the Russians are abandoning dead bodies in the field, in the snow, et cetera. Let's just say, for the sake of this discussion, that U.S. intelligence estimates, or intelligence rather, estimates are somewhere in the ballpark, 4,500 or more Russian casualties already. To put that in perspective, there were just over 2,400 American deaths in Afghanistan over decades. This has been less than two weeks. And that number might be double already for the Russians. That's a pretty dramatic uh, casualty rate, is it not? No, it is. I mean, if you have hundreds of, of uh, if you have hundreds of service members lost, that's dramatic. If you have thousands, it's 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 a big deal. One thing I will say is we we can't do apples to apples here. The Russian culture is different. The Russian military culture is different. All the way down to the way they design their their munitions. Um, I, you know, they really look at this as a whole, not a one. And so they uh, casualties to the Russian military and government is not what it is to ours. And part of that is because accountability does not exist there like it does here. Um, we can have our president literally, you know, apparently not only given the state union, but on most days we can literally have our, our, our leader answer for the deaths of one service member. In the right scenario. Uh, and so we, we treat it differently in our culture. So is it a big deal to us? Absolutely it is. Is it a big deal to Russia? That's, that's yet to be seen. Joey, as you look at the map, and I just saw it flash moments ago on the screen on Neil Cavuto's show on FNC, the map of Ukraine, and they have those areas that are under Russian control or where the Russians are advancing, and it's sort of around the periphery in the eastern part of the country and sort of wraps around the east from the north all the way down to the south. What is your take on tactically what the Russians have been able to accomplish and really in a lot of cases so far not accomplish? I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm not an expert by any stretch, but it really seems like the big objectives that the Russians reportedly expected to achieve quickly, uh, they have not done so far. What do you make of it? Well, I think what we're seeing now is just how dedicated Vladimir Putin is to making this happen. I mean, listen, you can hear our greatest military minds go on Fox or CNN, and you're going to hear differing opinions. But what you're going to get out of it is that we did not have the ability to predict this. We did not have the ability to predict it in the way that it's playing out. Does that mean we underestimated Ukraine? Does that mean we underestimated the resolve of Russia? Does that mean a little bit of both? Does that mean that we overestimated our diplomacy and ability to prevent it from happening? There's really two things going on at once here American people need to understand. One is geopolitical. One is a war in Ukraine that Russia has brought there that could shift how everything from trade to economy to to national defense in the world view uh, 
is acted out. The other thing is our domestic understanding and our domestic conversations. I mean, we have an American populace that is so untrusting of our own government that um, that it's dividing us over again. I mean, you either are full on board with support Ukraine or you're a Putin apologizer. But let, let me be honest with you, guy. There are millions of Americans who believe what's happening, what's being reported is happening in Ukraine, but also because of the people telling them about it, the John Kirby's, the, even the, the defense figures that have been around for a long time, that's actually the cause of their skepticism. Because when you sell us on a 20-year war and it comes out the way it did and you learn new things every day that don't make sense, it's really hard to believe the next opportunity or the, or the next conflict or crisis it's really hard to believe those same people. So what I see happening is this kind of ripping off of the Band-Aid or pulling back at the curtain with the American people like, hold on just a minute. If everything you're saying is true, of course this is horrific and we should be involved. But how do we know it's true? And maybe that's just the, maybe that's just the conspiracy theorists of the world getting a larger voice. But I really do think the American people are in a place to where through our own experience and unfortunately blood and treasure – they're very skeptical to understand what's happening based on just reporting alone. Yeah, whether it's Vietnam syndrome or Iraq, Afghanistan syndrome, uh, there's definitely some of that. The polling does show strong, strong bipartisan majorities taking the side of Ukraine, which I think is appropriate. Where I struggle is what to believe in terms of certain specifics. I know not to believe the Russian government. That sort of as a rule of thumb, I never believe them. And then there's some, I think, healthy skepticism and critical thinking required and also just some humility on my part where I I know what I don't know in some cases and this is an area far outside of my expertise and I try to make that point for this audience uh, routinely because I'm not going to just turn into an overnight expert like so many people seem to do you know on Twitter for example all of a sudden no they know everything about everything that's not the case here with me I don't pretend otherwise what I am hearing and this was said earlier at the Pentagon we now believe, the U.S. believes, that the Russians have now deployed between 95 and 100 percent of the pre-staged troops that they had massed along the border. So, I mean, the, the cavalry is there now, right? They're all in. They're suffering losses, as I just mentioned. And one buzz phrase that's now being used a lot is war crimes. And this is something where I'm curious to get your take on this and your experience on this, Joey, because... I hear you know, people who don't support the United States, our enemies, some of our internal critics will say we're in no position to critique civilian deaths because we've inflicted civilian deaths in various conflicts and wars through the years. I think that that's obviously undeniably true. I think the rebuttal would be we really go out of our way in a lot of ways to avoid those types of casualties and really put a high premium on human life, innocent human life, in a way – that certainly terrorists do not, and it would appear the Russian military is not, which is now raising this prospect. Are they committing not just acts of an unjustifiable, I would say, immoral, evil war? Are they actually targeting civilians, or are they so callous in their disregard for civilians that it amounts to a war crime? I just wonder, what's your experience in the U.S. military in trying to avoid these types of casualties, and whether it's the official definition of how you think about these things in your head when does war turn into war crimes? Listen, there's a lot of things that go through my head right now, and I'm, I'm just going to break it down and be really honest with you. It's not that I'm purporting one thing or the other, but it just shows you kind of where I am and where the American people are. 
when I hear the right people using the term war crimes at the right time as we're trying to work a deal to get uh, planes and, and to try to shift support in there, I started to be skeptical. I said, well, you know, you're, you're building a narrative to get the American people comfortable with the eventual goal of we're fighting this war against Russia. That's what I worry about. Now, with that being said, it's hard to see what's happening and not think other, other terrible things are happening. We hear reports of, of possibly, you know, rapes and pillaging happening. We hear – we see videos, and I can tell you as a, as a non-expert but an explosive ordnance disposal technician, yes, they are using what we call dispensers and payloads, uh, colloquially called cluster bombs. They're absolutely using that type of ordnance, and that's a big red flag. What makes something a war crime depends on what contract you adhere to, and Russia doesn't adhere to many of these contracts. So, you know, it may be much ado about nothing in the sense of I don't know that it's going to deter Russia in calling them out for what we perceive to be war crimes. Because the moment President Zelensky said every Ukrainian, um, you know, pick up a rifle and, and defend our country, well, Putin's going to turn that and say, OK, well, then every Ukrainian that picked up a rifle, civilian or not, is, is subject to, uh, to be attacked. And so when they had bomb an apartment building that's probably full of completely innocent civilians – their answer is going to be, no, we got shot at from that window. And, and so the opportunity to prove one side or the other wrong, it turns into more rhetoric than, than fact or, or opportunity. You want to talk about avoiding war crimes, avoiding civilian collateral. If we didn't care about that, I'd have legs today. I mean, that's, that's how much of an impact this was in my own life. I mean, my job primarily existed so that we could – remove the ordinance put in the ground by the enemy in the places that the locals live to reduce the impact on the lives of the locals. Now, I'm not going to tell you that's because we're so righteous that we don't ever want to see a civilian casualty. Man, I hope that's true. But practically speaking, it makes a heck of a lot of sense for them to be on our side if we're going to be there fighting this war on their behalf. I mean, if we're going to be fighting the Taliban on behalf of the Afghan people as much as our own, because we hope that the Afghan people overpower the Taliban and Afghanistan becomes a legitimately governed place that we don't worry about looking over our shoulder against, then it helps that we stop them from dying, even if that means putting our own life at risk. So, that, so that's what we do. I mean, there And the Russians are obviously to... taking the opposite approach in Ukraine, where even if they quote-unquote win, I mean, they're going to have a population there that absolutely despises them. So, and that's where this narrative starts to break down. I start to ask questions. When I say narrative, I don't mean did I think the Russians are justified invading Ukraine? Did I think they're not indiscriminately killing them? Or did I think we don't have an obligation to support Ukraine? All those things I do believe. What I get concerned about are the Lindsey Grahams of the world that were in Ukraine with John McCain not that long ago making promises that they had no idea if our government ever would back up. And that's the kind of pol politicians being politicians and uh, that I worry about. And what I mean by this is, our experts or leaders told us in the beginning of this that Putin's objective was to overthrow the government of Ukraine and instill a government that was Russia-friendly. All right, well, that doesn't add up to we're going to go in and kill as many people indiscriminately as we can in hopes that you one day are Russian-friendly. So what I mean by that is that it, I lose faith in our ability to assess what Putin's ultimately attempting to do and what his objective is because what's happening – does not align with what was predicted. And that's what's worrisome. That tells me our intelligence community is at a disadvantage. That tells me that our ability to objectively and clearly assess without adding in our own bias or politics. And when I say us, I mean the think tanks and the, and the, the right offices of the DOD 
or at least what's being communicated to us as American civilians, do not add up to what we're also being told is happening. And so there's a disconnect here somewhere, and that's why Americans have questions. That doesn't mean— Yeah, I mean, p- part that, of it could you know, be, Joey, that, that the plan of Putin didn't go according to plan, and therefore he's you know on plan C or D at this point, and he thought he could do a quick sort of you know surgical decapitation invasion, and the Ukrainians would kind of roll over or even greet them as liberators— Obviously, that is not what's happening throughout the country, and we're watching the horrific videos that prove it every single day. Very quickly, Joey, last question, about a minute left, morale. We're hearing a lot about low morale among Russian troops who didn't even know, apparently, that they were being deployed for this reason. Bad training. It's cold. There are you know, people in the population trying to kill them, and morale, at least reportedly, is very low. Having been in a combat zone, obviously, and, and risking your life every day. Talk about the importance of morale, what that looks like in reality. And if it's true that Russian morale among their troops is low, what significance would that have potentially? I deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. When I deployed to Afghanistan, if you would have asked me at 24 years old why I was there, my answer would have been to protect the men and women to my left and right so that they can go home and see their family. Does that say anything about our mission in Afghanistan? Does that say anything really about patriotism? So if that was the perspective of the majority of Americans fighting in Afghanistan, we still fought it for 20 years, and we were never at a lack of, of Americans eager to fight the war that, that they were told they, they should fight and was for a just cause. So I caution at the, again, this over-predictive machine that says, oh, well, they're not all that motivated. Like, in my opinion right now, we do not know enough to say the things we're saying, and that's what's troublesome to me because it's also a very convenient narrative to say, well, let's just throw some jets there. Okay, well, let's just put some pilots with it. Okay, well, now we're at war with Russia, and I worry about that. doesn't mean I don't also sit here and have an 18-year-old Marine inside of me that sees a picture of a Ukrainian woman and her two kids what looks to be killed with their bags in their hand and say, you know what, man, put my legs back on. I'm going to go kill every communist I can. Of course that person exists inside of me. I believe myself to believe in the right thing. Um, but we're, we're so early in this. And when I say early, I mean early in Americans paying attention. And now the experts coming out of the woodwork to talk about it. That I am going to be skeptical of almost all of it until our government earns my trust back in some way. And until those think tanks that purported a 20-year war earns my trust back in some way. And that's what's so defeating for me because – how does that happen? I mean, how do we do the right thing anymore? That We put ourselves at such a disadvantage in the way that we've handled our defense over the last several years and weaponizing it to be partisan politics that it's up to those politicians, it's up to our leaders, and hopefully some really honest Americans to get into politics to earn that trust back from the American people. And that's what concerns me domestically the most right now. Notes of skepticism and caution from Joey Jones, our guest, Fox News contributor, Retired Marine. Joey, always appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, bro. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. We were talking about energy and oil production with Katie Pavlich earlier. It's a hot topic among Leaders here in the United States as well, and a growing chorus, a bipartisan chorus, saying this is crazy what we're doing. We need to have much more production here at home and not be begging 
other, especially hostile countries, to produce more. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida on ABC said this, cut nine. We have more than enough ability in this country to produce enough oil to make up for the, the percentage that we buy from Russia. And, uh, and by the way, this notion that somehow banning Russian oil would raise prices on American consumers is an admission that this guy, that this killer, that this butcher, Vladimir Putin, has leverage over us. Why would we want that leverage to continue? Why, why would we have someone like him to have the power to raise gas prices on Americans, which is basically, if he cuts us off, what would happen in the reverse? So I think we have enough of it. We should produce more American oil and buy less Russian oil or none, actually none at all. He's not the only one saying that. Joe Manchin, a Democrat, saying something similar. He's teamed up with Lisa Murkowski on this issue. Dick Durbin, even of Illinois, says he's signing on. Maybe the Biden administration's hand will actually get forced on this question at some point soon. Stepping aside, coming back, Mike Tobin from Ukraine Live next. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. Let's get straight to Mike Tobin, who is live in Lviv, Ukraine. He is Fox News international correspondent. He's on the ground there. Mike, welcome back. Hey, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I want to ask about morale. We were talking to a previous guest about the morale of Russian troops, and allegedly it's low in a lot of cases. How is the morale of the Ukrainian population? I know you're in the western part of the country, sort of a large city in the far west near the border. Based on people that you're talking to, how are they feeling about how things are going? Well, start with the obvious one, the fact that they've been invaded. They're very upset about that Um, in terms of uh, how it's going. They're they're pleased that they are doing as well as they are doing. You know, they're they're so outmatched. Um, Actually, I should say they're outgunned, but they're not outmatched. And you can see that the the Russians have just been flummoxed as they're trying to move uh, ahead. It sounds like they have all sorts of logistic problems. You talk about morale. Um, A lot of the Russian soldiers apparently thought they were part of a training exercise. And the next thing you know, they're 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 invading their neighbor. Well, the uh, the people you know who have the home field advantage at that point, the home field disadvantage of being invaded, I guess would be a better way to say, are very motivated. And everyone here, even in the western part of the country, is in the fight. We've been with the guys who've been making Molotov cocktails, uh, the welding shops. Everybody quits uh, making what they were making before, and now they're making roadblocks. Um, people pitch in like an arts and crafts class to make camo netting so uh, what remains of the Ukrainian armor, uh, they can hide it. And uh, they're very pleased, especially when they hear the information that comes out of the Pentagon, that the U.S. officials are very impressed uh, with the speed with which the Ukrainians are getting these weapons uh, that are uh, sent from other countries, that they're getting them up to the fighters and putting them in use, and the effectiveness with which the fighters are using them. The whole time we're talking about this 40-mile convoy uh, that seems to sort of disappeared around Kiev, um, the uh, Ukrainians are fighting them, and they're they're firing on them. So uh, as much as you have a giant fighting force, it gets smaller every time the Ukrainians go after them, and that's why you see the information now that uh, Russia has, uh, last figure I heard is 100% in terms of everybody who was based on the border. They're all in now. 
So this is this is Russia's A game, and it's not going as quickly as uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, at least according to our officials in the Pentagon, that Russia would like. Mike, we have seen a lot of people standing up, staying home, fighting the Russians, some Ukrainian nationals coming home to fight the Russians, even some foreign nationals coming into the country to do battle with the Russian military. But there's also this crush of people, families, children, the elderly, desperate to get out of war-torn areas of Ukraine. And they're trying to get to places like Poland, for example. What can you tell us about that on the humanitarian side of things? It's a tremendous crush. You know, you think about, we were just talking about a a factoid. Uh, During the Irish potato famine, a million people left Ireland. Well, in this crush of refugees, you have a million people who've gone to just Poland alone. Already they've totaled up 1.7 million, and that was much earlier in the day, uh, waiting for the uh, latest tally from the UNHCR. But uh, the, the flow of refugees is constant, and it is overwhelming. There's a train that comes out of Kiev. Um, you don't need a ticket. You just, as soon as the passenger cars are full, the train leaves. So the schedule doesn't exist anymore. And they come here to uh, Lviv, uh, where you only have four trains a day leaving for Poland. So you do have a big backup here uh, in, in the westernmost big city uh, in Ukraine. And it's cold out here. You have a lot of people who are now pitching in. Uh, they're making food for the people. They're, they're coming up with tents. And you have that on the Polish side of the border as well. Uh, the government's pitching in. Private sector's pitching in. Individuals are pitching in. Um, I've even seen pictures of people uh, showing up and leaving baby strollers at the border just so these mothers who are crossing with their, with their infant children uh, have something to put them in. Wow. It's, it's, it's really remarkable, you know. It kind of goes back to the old Fred, Fred Rogers uh, saying, when you see something horrible happening, look to the people who are helping. It does lift your spirits a bit to see the way that people are pitching in. Last question, Mike. I know you've got to run, but we're talking about people leaving the country. There are also weapons coming into the country from a lot of right. Western countries and others around the world. Where is that happening without getting too specific? And is there an effective pipeline, so to speak, of weapons and missiles and you know anti-tank munitions to the Ukrainian military coming in from the West? The stairs and the javelins are largely coming in through uh, Romania and through Poland. Uh, of course, the base is secret. And um, it, again, it goes back to what we're hearing from the Pentagon. They say it's unprecedented, the speed with which uh, the Ukrainians are getting these weapons uh, through their logistical hubs and getting them out to the front, you know, front lines where the, where the fighters can use them. Fox News international correspondent Mike Tobin live in Lviv, Ukraine at this hour. Mike, thank you and stay safe. Thank you. I'm going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, I want to follow up with the very latest on a story we have been now been watching and really following closely for days on this show, Iran and the alleged massive giveaway from the Biden administration via the Russians to Iran. There is a soundbite, a few clips that I need you to listen carefully to. We will play you those soundbites as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. We're going to follow up now on this issue that has been emerging, a controversy involving 
U.S. negotiations with Iran, indirect relations with the Iranian regime. The death to America, death to Israel, Iranian regime. We told you already about how the Obama administration, of course, had their, in my view, fatally flawed nuclear deal with the Iranians. That was never approved by Congress. In fact, there was a 60 percent disapproval vote in Congress, including a lot of Democrats. Then the presidency changed. It wasn't a treaty that had been voted on by the Congress, and therefore Trump was able to get us out of it, which he did. Controversial, but correct, in my view. And Biden came in, and they are just fixated on going back to apparently any deal with Iran just to check the box and say that they've done it. And these negotiations have been ongoing in Vienna for quite some time now, where we are not talking straight to the Iranians, because they won't. We are talking through the Russians, and not only the Russians, by the way. I'll get to that in a second. But primarily the Russians are running this show. The Russians are a hostile power. The Russians do not have our best interests at heart. They do not. Not on Iran, not on almost anything else. But even with the Kremlin and Putin waging war on Ukraine, potentially threatening NATO, making noises about you know, nuclear arsenals and that sort of thing, we are treating his diplomats like it's all business as usual so long as they can help us give billions of dollars to the Iranian regime in exchange for basically nothing. Now, we don't have the details of this agreement that, by several accounts, including the State Department, is imminent. The United States, the U.S. Congress, has been cut out of this process. They don't know precisely what's happening. The rumors are that it's terrible, that the capitulation is shocking, that it is far worse than the bad Obama-era deal, worse So bad that, as we've mentioned before, three members of our own negotiating team on the American side from the Biden team, three members resigned in protest. That was the Wall Street Journal report a number of weeks ago. Undeterred, the Biden folks have pressed forward and they are relying on a man named Mikhail Ulyanov, a Russian diplomat working for Putin to strike the best deal possible. And it sounds like that's exactly what Ulyanov is attempting. But when I say best deal, he seems to think of it differently than Americans would, unsurprisingly, because he's not on our side, even though we've outsourced our negotiating to him and to the Russians, which, again, given what's happening right now, is unfathomable. It's like like it, you can't make it up, but that is what's happening. So he gave an interview in recent days. I saw the clip. He's speaking in heavily accented English. I'm hoping you can understand. I can also do some translating. He was asked about what a great deal this is likely to be for Iran. And he's like, oh, yeah, for sure. Here is the lead negotiator supposedly working on our behalf. But he's a Russian. Here's how he's describing how the talks ahead of this potential accord have gone, cut 15. Iranian colleagues are fighting for Iranian nuclear uh, national interests like lions. <laughs> Indeed, I'm serious, serious. 
they fight for every comma, every word. Uh, and uh, as a rule, quite successfully. I must recognize that. Uh, uh, do you think that this could be a good deal with, for Iran? Because there have been different arguments inside the I'm, I'm, I, I'm absolutely sincere in this regard. Iran got much more than it could expect. Much more. Realistically speaking, uh, Iran got uh, more than, frankly, I expected, others expected. This is a matter of fact. All right, so a little bit hard to understand him, but he says the Iranian clerics are fighting for nukes. He sort of slips and he says for their national interest like lions. They're fighting for every comma, every word, and quite successfully, I must recognize and he's sort of acting like he's this surprised outside actor here as opposed to the linchpin of the negotiations. He says Iran got much more than it could have expected. Much more, he repeated for emphasis. And they're talking about this like it's a done deal. And how Iran apparently committed highway robbery. They just got so much more than anyone would have expected. Well, he negotiated it, and I can't imagine he'd be too upset about it because he was the one negotiating it with apparently an extremely weak American delegation where some people who were just a little bit less weak, maybe more uh, robust, a little bit more hawkish, more skeptical of the Iranians, so disgusted by what they were seeing that they couldn't be a part of it anymore and left weeks ago, leaving behind even weaker people, like the weakest people. And here you have the Russians saying, just sort of ooing and eyeing, expressing astonishment at how much the Iranians were able to get. Much more than they could have expected. Much more. He said that is a matter of fact. Then a little bit later on in this same interview with a journalist, here's this uh, Russian leader talking about how this all came together. And listen to what he says in Cut 16. Our Chinese our friends... You also very uh, efficient and useful as co-negotiators. We could rely on, on each other on many, many points. And on many, many points, through joint efforts, we succeeded. I can recollect dozens of such cases when on rather serious, significant questions, we managed together to get positive results, close to what we wanted to achieve. So this is the ringleader of these negotiations, one of Putin's apparatchiks. And you may have missed it the very beginning of the clip. He was starting to sing the praises of, quote, our Chinese friends. He says they were very efficient, very useful as co-negotiators. We could rely on each other to win on many points. He said, I can remember dozens of examples where that happened. And significant questions could be managed together, and we could get positive results that we wanted to achieve. So just to recap what we are hearing here, the Biden administration, with some of their more skeptical, anti-Iran, tougher elements gone in protest, walking away, The Biden administration pressing forward anyway, 
because they are so hell-bent on getting any deal with the Iranians. They have left it to the Russians to negotiate for us and apparently the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party. I will remind you that the Russians and the Chinese have recently signed an agreement to cooperate fully on many things as a bulwark against the West, against the United States and our power and our alliances. We've handed them this football to go negotiate a new, much worse deal with Iran on nukes, where Iran gets billions of dollars, allegedly, in sanctions relief. A lot of it would be immediate to some of their crucial banks that fund their illicit weapons programs. Some of the most awful, bloodthirsty killers and terrorists in that regime, the number one state sponsor of terrorism, I will remind you, would get off of sanctions, off of various lists. Iran would continue to pursue various other weapons with impunity, and they would also become, under this deal, a threshold nuclear state soon. And in response, reportedly, they're giving up virtually nothing at all. And the Russians are out here crowing about it. They're thrilled. And they're just so pleased that their friends and partners, the Chinese, were able to help them achieve all of these wonderful things. With Iran, I will point out, the, those three countries, the new Axis, those three countries recently announced joint war exercises. To say that the Russian, Chinese, and Iranian government does not have American interests at heart would be the understatement of the century. And yet, those are the three governments apparently instrumental in what's happening in Vienna on behalf of the Biden administration. Here's another component of this. I can't give you specifics about what the giveaways look like to Iran, although I read some of the whistleblowing tweets from Gabriel Naronha last week, former State Department official. He's hearing things. Rumors from State Department officials, maybe some of the people who quit, at least quit the negotiating team, saying, here's what might happen. Here's what's on the table. Here's what's been conceded. And it's just it's shocking. The sanctions relief, taking people off of terrorist lists, all of these things that the Iranians want in exchange for basically nothing in return. And we're engaged in conjecture here because we don't know. Members of Congress don't know. Members of the Intelligence Committee and Armed Services Committees, bipartisan, bicameral, they don't know. But who does know are the Iranian regime. They seem pretty happy. The Russians, thrilled, as you just heard. And even the Chinese. Our enemies know what's in the deal. Our representatives don't. A deal that's being struck at the behest of the Biden administration. I mean, this is... A scandal. This is outrageous. And I hope there's a bipartisan effort for Congress to assert itself here. This has to come before Congress. This can't just be done and let the sanctions relief start flowing. We're not going to let go of this story. It's the Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up next. Next. 
Minute. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much for listening every single weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, and around the clock for free at GuyBensonShow.com. The free podcast, no charge to you, is right there each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious and expanding across the country. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. One of our listeners actually emailed me, just yesterday, or sent me a note yesterday, he had gotten some out in Arizona for a getaway with some of his buddies. They all tried it for the first time. He said it was a huge hit. So people are learning about the long drink every day here. We're spreading the word. TheLongDrink.com. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. See you tonight on Special Report around 640 Eastern. I'll be on the panel this evening, Fox News Channel Looking forward to that. We'll be reacting to, among other things, Brett Bayer's exclusive interview with, I guess it's not super exclusive because he's doing tons of interviews, but it's his first on Fox. Bill Barr, former attorney general under the Trump administration. He's got a book out. I actually started the book over the weekend. He will be here a week from today in studio for multiple segments. Really looking forward to that conversation with the AG, former AG. But he's with Brett tonight. We'll react on the panel. With that, let's get to someone who is not a stranger at all to the special report panel. It is our colleague, our friend, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of two bestsellers, including most recently, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and Democrats Seized Our Elections, at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, welcome back. Well, it's great to be here with you on your birthday. Happy birthday. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. All I want for my birthday, Molly, is a charcuterie board from your daughter that's all i ask <laughs> she, she can work on it i thought you might wish for world peace since that's something that we could really use right now well you know i'm in favor of that i just feel like that's a big ask <laughs> right i feel like I, I would prefer to ask for something specific that's more realistic and some cured yeah. meats on a piece of uh you know wood or something like that from your daughter uh seems yeah. more realistic at this moment so that, that, now now i feel bad i didn't say world <laughs> peace i said prosciutto I think it, I think it makes sense, and she might very well bring something over. So okay, all right, sounds good, Molly. Before we get to some other topics here, and we might get to Russia, just a few updates here that I just saw coming across. The third round of talks between the two sides have now concluded. Not much there. One potential ceasefire option on the table for some civilians. Also, Ukrainian officials saying that they're bracing for a new barrage of attacks from the Russians. But here at home. Molly, I was not fully prepared for this. I knew that the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, was buying ad time on cable in New York to try to rehabilitate his destroyed image that he himself destroyed. And then he showed up at a church yesterday and had a lot to say. We will likely try to get into this with Janice Dean later in the week. But I guess the way that Cuomo's trying to go about this is to claim that he is the innocent victim of cancel culture. So he's sort of melding cancel culture misappropriation with 
some sort of woke leftist talking points as well. Here's part of what he said at this church yesterday. Cut 17. Yes, this is a time for impatience, but constructive impatience. If you want to cancel something, cancel federal gridlock, cancel the incompetence, cancel the infighting, cancel crime, cancel homelessness, cancel education inequality, cancel poverty, cancel racism. Be outraged, but be outraged at what really matters, and what really matters is what matters to you. And it's certainly not the multiple allegations of sexual harassment or misconduct, and it's certainly not the massive cover-up of forcing sick seniors back into nursing homes to infect other people and die by the thousands and then not counting them properly on purpose so that you could sell the narrative that you were a great COVID leader so you could then sell a book for $5 million. That is not what you should be outraged about, apparently. You should not cancel him for those things. Instead, Molly, cancel racism. This is from the pulpit, reading from a teleprompter. What do you make of this? It's almost sociopathic behavior. I'm yes. not saying that everything he's saying doesn't have some wisdom behind it. There is, there's truth in the need to speak out against cancel culture. There even might be something to the issue of uh, – how we talk about inappropriate sexual relationships and whether they require full cancellation. But this guy only resigned under, you know, in disgrace a few months ago. This is not the kind of well-considered, thoughtful wisdom that you would expect if, after someone went into the wilderness for years or decades and came out on the other side. He just quit or had to, you know, had to resign just a few months ago. He's not the person to be making this argument at all. It is completely self-serving. And it just it's beyond bizarre, right? It is. It's weird. And, you know, if you're someone who's like, you know, I I had to go lick my wounds. I had to go do some self-reflection and take inventory. And after much prayer and reflection and careful, considered thought, these years later, I have a few thoughts. No, he's like, having left several weeks ago. I would like my old job back, everyone, and so let me come to a church and give a speech blaming everyone else for everything. And I do think it is convenient to him that so much of the media and the New York Democrats made his downfall only about the sexual allegations and not about the other grave misconduct, cover-ups, making money, profiting off of these cover-ups. To me, that was always the biggest issue— and he's just hoping that I guess whatever this this weird comeback tour is about will just airbrush all of that away. Not here, but maybe elsewhere. Guys, that is such a good point. I'm not saying that that other story wasn't valid or newsworthy, but the idea that people could escape their own complicity in all of his lies surrounding COVID. So he was the one who was responsible for the nursing home policy, for covering up the nursing home policy that led to these thousands of deaths. But it was many people in corporate media that that ran wild with that as a as a wedge to to put into the national conversation about who was handling things well and who wasn't handling things well. And by making his downfall be about these uh, sexual relationships or, you know, inappropriate flirtations or whatever they were. Uh, it allowed the media and other elite figures to escape their own culpability in right. some of his bad decision making. That was their escape hatch that they all sort of said, OK, we're too invested in the other stuff, but let's let's get him on this. And I guess he's going to try to take advantage of it. I just don't know what his what the audience is here. Right. I mean, is, does he 
Does he really – is he that delusional? He thinks he can come back and start his political career? He's not a young man. I, I just – sociopathic I to, or borderline sociopathic the, is apt. Yeah. The, the Cuomo family is a powerful New York family. It has to have been very um, humiliating what they went through in the last few months. And I'm sure they have many highly placed and powerful people who are looking to punish the people who brought them down. I just don't know if this is a particularly well thought out approach because it just comes off like he's even worse than you thought he was beforehand and that he's not competent enough to have a proper PR rollout of his of his uh, return to public life. You know, at being in a church, I just want to say he should repent and publicly announce his regret and repentance of things he did wrong, whether it was his nursing home policy or lying about the nursing home policy or the treatment of these women and be forgiven. I mean, it, you, this is one of the beautiful things about being Christian is you can be forgiven. And to use it instead for a political launching pad, as so many politicians do, Republican and Democrat, it's just gross and, and uh, dishonors what church is really about. Briefly, Molly, on another subject also having to do with very shaky or shoddy PR, for a lot of kids today, including in New Jersey, we'll get to this later, is the day that they're finally allowed to have, in some cases, an opportunity not to wear a mask anymore in school. Although in New York City, I see the the new mayor said that if you're five or under, you still have to, which is like exactly backwards. Like, all right, everyone's free of the mask mandate except for three-year-olds. It's just completely crazy. I see Walensky's out there giving interviews and, and talking about the vaccines and the way that they were sold. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff with the public health establishment and politicians where they're almost trying to engage in self-congratulation right now, even though that's very much not where a lot of people are in terms of what they've earned. Just your thoughts on that. Just I can't imagine a worse couple of years for the public health profession and our, you know, quote, science, quote, in general than what we just went through. People have lost so much respect for these public health professionals, people who weaponized scientific discussions for political gain. Um, and it has really sown distrust with many people in the medical science, public health communities. And I'm not sure if that can ever be recovered among people who are currently alive. I did see that Florida was saying something about how they would not recommend vaccination for very young children. Just to point out right. that healthy young children. Yeah, for healthy young children. Vaccination is a good idea for people who are older, for people who are immunocompromised. If people had just been straightforward about what it was and how it was good, but also its limitations, I think you would not have seen this loss of trust um, and just a much more balanced. That horse is out of the barn. I mean, wit's long gone at this point. And your point, I think, is well taken. Molly Hemingway, Federalist. Fox News contributor. Always appreciate it. I await my cured meats, Molly. Thank you very much for joining. Have a great day. Bye. You too. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Happy 37th birthday, Guy. From the very beginning, you have loved talking to and engaging with all sorts of people, and you have never shied away from an opportunity to celebrate a happy occasion. And today is certainly one of those. Have a great birthday, Guy. We love you so much. What she said. (laughs) We love Love you, honey. Happy birthday, Guy. I can't wait to celebrate with you tonight. You're the smartest, most talented, and hardworking person I know, and you deserve the world for your birthday. I can't wait to see what's in store for us this year. 
I know that it's going to be great. Happy birthday. I can't imagine a better person to spend the rest of my life with. I love you. This is Mary Catherine Ham. You know, I'm I'm calling in from Aruba. I've just hopped off the Cuckoo Canoo for the first annual cookie crawl in honor of Guy Benson's birthday. And honestly, it's weird you're not here. Uh, Christine told me that you guys were best friends and she was going to make it happen. And I thought, I'm your best friend, so I should be there too. Um, but there must have been like a schedule conflict or you know, I guess you're spending more time with your family. Anyway, we miss you. We miss you like carousel. Wait, Christine, that last part reads like a threat. I don't – just just cut that part out. Okay? You don't want that. All right. We miss you. Love you, Guy Benson. Happy birthday. Birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear heaven. Happy birthday to you. Woo! Guy, this is Steve. Hey, and this is Robin. Happy birthday. Happy birthday week. And happy birthday month. Enjoy your celebration. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hey, Guy. It's Dan, here wishing you a happy, happy birthday. I hope when you blow out your candles, you wish for baseball to come back like I would. Go Yankees. Hey, Guy. It's Wyatt, or YY, or Quiet Wyatt, or now, as we know, War Wyatt. Um, today, I have approved this segment to go through because uh, it's a big, important day. It is your birthday, and I hope you have a happy, happy birthday. This is Anna Delvey from the Anna Delvey Foundation, ADF. I heard it's your birthday. I hope nobody hurts your little baby feelings on your birthday. And don't eat too much cake. You'll get fat. Oh, we're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Oh, boy. I'm trying to figure out how to even unpack what we all just heard. Thank you for being here during this happy hour. So you heard from my parents. You heard from my in-laws. You heard from my husband. You heard from my best friend with a lot of inside jokes. For those of you who listen to Bonus Benson or these Home Stretch segments, I think you heard a lot of them there. And by the way, I have to give a special shout-out on this March 7th. Yes, it is my birthday. It is also the anniversary for Mary Catherine and her husband, their second anniversary. So happy anniversary, MK. And then the whole team, very kind of them to chime in. Why it was especially funny. Dan, you're right, although I'm feeling increasingly gloomy about prospect for the baseball season. And then last there, it was a very strange, maybe familiar voice with a bizarre accent. That was producer Christine doing her impression of... What's the name of the show? Inventing Anna, Anna Delvey. It's a big Netflix hit. I have, in fact, watched it. She's not going to drag me into this topic today because we will discuss it on a home stretch this week. I finally finished the ninth and final episode. She's a big fan, but she insisted that she did an amazing impression of Anna Delvey. And now, obviously, she shared it with the world. And it was less terrible than it was on the phone earlier. I'll give her that, but still could use some work. Christine. Well, that was rude. Are you still doing Anna Delvey? Is this what this is? I'm done. I'm done. done. But I I hope you enjoyed it, Guy. We hope you have a very, very happy birthday. You're my best friend in the entire world, (laughs) and I can't wait to celebrate tonight. You know what I like celebrating every day is healthy boundaries, and that's why – I do the show from D.C. and you produce the show from New York. Healthy boundaries among, I would say, friendly colleagues, which is a similar phrase to best friends, just slightly different. 
It was nice of you to put that together. You always do some sort of montage each year because we've now – is this my third, maybe fourth birthday that we've spent on the air together? I always brace for impact of who have you chased down. This year I'm actually grateful you didn't go chase down a bunch of Fox personalities to sort of wish me a happy birthday and take time out of their busy schedule because I feel guilty. Like I was going to lose it if you had Trey Yingst. Right, like Could right from imagine? like from from Kiev. Like I know things are rough here, but I want to wish you a happy birthday. Like I was gonna, I was gonna have a word with you afterwards. But I think better judgment prevailed in this case. War Wyatt probably nixed that immediately, and we kept it within the family, so to speak. And I just have to take this opportunity to again thank everyone who was a part of that, and it's very meaningful, and it's very sweet to hear everyone's voice. Um, I also want to tease for the audience that we will return to something somewhat political in the next segment here. But when we come back for the home stretch, our final segment, which will be a longer one today, we have a birthday celebration, if you will, that will not focus on my birthday itself or even on me. It will, however, focus on ice cream. And I explained recently on the show that a major ice cream manufacturer. I guess it's more of a boutique ice cream producer, but they got wind of a few things I was saying about one of their controversial flavors, and they decided that they were going to basically troll me and send it to me, along with some of their less controversial flavors that I'm much more excited about. We are going to taste them on the air because it's my birthday and because I can. So I guess that will be my birthday gift to me on the air coming up later on this hour on the home stretch but as i mentioned back to politics sort of briefly when we return it is yes a birthday edition of the guy benson show and yes a very happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink and we'll be right back after this Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's our happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Monday. And we have a very special home stretch coming up in the next segment. We will be doing something that I don't think we've ever done here on the program. We will be breaking new ground here. And I'm not calling myself heroic. That's for you to determine, really. I'm not saying I'm a hero for doing this next segment. But you want to stay tuned. There's ice cream involved. Okay. So that's coming up. One of the reasons that we are especially happy in this happy hour, even though it's only Monday as we begin a new week, is because finally in producer Christine's home state, her daughter, Megan, who has been suffering with masks in school and at summer camp, we've talked about it many times here, she has finally been liberated. March 7th was the deadline that was given by Governor Murphy. And Christine, was your daughter able to go to school today sans mask finally? She was definitely able to go without a mask. I have to say I was shocked dropping her off at the school drop-off line. Uh, All the teachers, all the adults that were waiting for the kids outside were still all masked. Uh, Outdoors. Yep. Waiting for the kids. Uh, A lot of the kids coming in were still masked. I looked at Megan and I said, do not put your mask on. 
And she asked me to keep one in her backpack just in case. I didn't even want her to do that. But the one thing that she said to me that broke my heart was she was so excited. She goes, Mommy, I get to see my teacher's face today. She had never seen her teacher's full face this entire year or probably last year. And she couldn't believe she was about to see her teacher's full face. I mean, that's just sort of mind-blowing. Is the teacher going to not wear a mask, though? I don't know. She, she I might don't still know. mask up. Yeah, she might still mask up. I don't know. I can't wait to hear from Megan today about, like, who was masked, who wasn't. You know, I'm also hoping that kids that are masked aren't shaming the other ones that aren't. I doubt it. I doubt that would happen. And I'm just happy that there's a choice. Look, if you want to keep wearing the mask or keep your kid in a mask or you're a teacher and you want to wear the mask in perpetuity, go for it. But finally, parents have a choice. You and Bobby have made your choice crystal clear. No mask for little Megan. And she had had this date circled for a while, right? Could you tell there was an extra pep in her step this morning? She talked about it nonstop this weekend as well. She was just so excited. No, happy Liberation Day. To Megan and so many of the kids, it's outrageous that it took this long, honestly. But at least it has finally arrived. Let's hope we never go back. Okay, we've got to run because we have pressing business to attend to. Ice cream, birthday, taste test, controversy. It's all ahead on the home stretch next. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on this Monday, and it is, as we've mentioned on the program earlier, a special Monday here on the program. It is, in fact, my birthday. And let me tell you, there is nothing more exciting than turning 37 on a Monday. But to lighten things up here and sweeten things up, if you will, at the end of the program, we are going to follow through on something that we mentioned to you, what was it, last week probably at some point, maybe the week before, Jenny's Ice Cream is a high-end ice cream manufacturer. I believe they're based in Ohio. And I've had their stuff before, generally quite delicious. It's on the pricey side. I will say that. I know there was a whole Pelosi thing, you might remember, with her very expensive freezers and the Jenny's ice cream. Well, last year at some point, Jenny's announced a new flavor, which was everything bagel flavored ice cream. You know the bagel that you can get that has, like, garlic and onions and sesame seeds and poppies, like everything. They just throw the kitchen sink on this bagel, which I don't like in bagel form. They've turned it into ice cream, apparently. So we uh, gave it a hard pass here on the show. We had our debate about it. I'm sure it was during a home stretch, And I was a firm no. I also tweeted something to this effect on my personal feed, at Guy P. Benson. Well, Jenny's is now out with a new batch of everything bagel ice cream. Mind you, I have not tried it. This was one of the things where I felt like I didn't need to try it to know that I wasn't terribly interested. But the good folks at Jenny's Ice Cream reached out to me. They slid into my DMs on Instagram, at Guy P. Benson. Same handle for Twitter and Instagram. They said, hey, we seem to recall that you had some negative thoughts about this flavor, well, it's coming back, and we want to send it to you and see if maybe a free pint might change your mind. So after some intense negotiations, by which I mean I said, sure, that'd be great, thank you, 
can you send some other flavors too? They said, oh, yeah, no problem. They have sent actually Quiet Wyatt was the person who intercepted the ice cream at my direction. I was out of town. They sent six pints of ice cream, six different flavors to Quiet Wyatt's apartment. He transported them here to Fox today. And I'm surprised he didn't have, like, an armed entourage to protect this ice cream. And, Wyatt, you said that you had to put a sign in the freezer warning people, do not eat this ice cream. This is official property of the Guy Benson Show for the home stretch. Were these ice creams tampered with, or did people obey your message? Uh, people obeyed, yeah. I, I, I was worried that there was going to be some, some – uh some opening of the ice cream in the in the communal uh, freezer, but we we successfully got it here in, in one piece. And it happens to be a very hot day in D.C., so I was also worried about transporting it in this heat. Yes, because we have not hit a eighty degree day yet. So, but we're 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 solid. So, without further ado, and for my birthday, and most importantly for the purposes of science, because we believe in science here at the show, I am going to sample. All of these ice creams on the air. I think it's incredibly important. And I will do my best to react. And I'm going to start. And just so you know, I have six different spoons. So there's no cross-contamination. We take our science seriously here. I also have a delicious Coke Zero waiting. In fact, let me just yeah, open that Coke Zero so I can cleanse the palate in between each flavor. Here we go. Oh, yeah, that's good. Okay. It's one of my favorites. All right, we are opening with the controversy. We are starting – oh, it's, it's dripping already. We are starting ew, with the Everything Bagel ice cream, and I am, I am highly skeptical, but we're going to try. And they call it cream cheese ice cream with everything bagel gravel. Doesn't that sound appealing? All right, we're trying it. That tastes like an everything bagel. It's cold. It has some sweetness to it. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. It's too savory. It, it's not really a dessert. Hang on, having one more tiny. I give them credit because it is truth in advertising. It is absolutely everything bagel flavored. It's not subtle. It hits you right across the face. And if you love an everything and if you love everything bagels, you might actually like this. It just it doesn't strike me as something you would want for dessert. Okay. So I'm going to stick with my hard pass. And I say that with gratitude toward Jenny's for sending this to me. By the way, this is not an ad for them. They're not paying this. They just plied me with ice cream. I'm not that hard to figure out. By the way, if there's any bourbon companies out there, find winemakers, you know, um, can I tweet something bad about your product? You'll send me an array of your products for me to taste on the air, although maybe not hard liquor. Plus, we only have one liquor product in our hearts here on the show, and that, of course, is the long drink, which is sponsoring this very segment. Okay, so everything bagel, we're done with that one. So the next, the next one up here is another one that I'm not terribly excited about, I have to admit. And this is not Jenny's fault. It's just I don't really like mint. I like breath mints to help, you know, if I've got, uh, for example, everything bagel breath. You want some mint. But I don't love mint-flavored ice creams. And I know that some of you are very mad at me for saying that because chocolate chip mint, for example, 
is one of the most popular flavors out there, just not for me. This is called Savannah Butter Mint, a buttery after-dinner mint ice cream with white chocolate flecks. So, oh, hang on, I have to do, I have to cleanse my palate. I almost forgot the scientific method we have here. Okay, so there's a Coke Zero helping wipe away the bagel flavor. I'm going to peel this thing off the top. We're getting a little drippy here. Oop, hang on. New spoon. Need a new spoon. We've got better uh, protocols here than the Wuhan lab. Okay. This is going to be white flecks of chocolate embedded in a buttery after-dinner mint ice cream. Okay. So if you like mint in your ice cream, you're going to love this. I don't like mint in my ice cream, so I'm not like, you know, let me get another big scoop of that. But and the white chocolate is subtle, but you can taste it. Okay. Um, this is good. I don't like minty things in my ice cream. I don't really get the after-dinner thing either. I feel like that's very limiting to when ice cream should be consumed. I think ice cream should be consumed at all times of the day, basically. I'll be a great parent, won't I? Okay. Next flavor. Next flavor. I've got to pick up the pace here because we're running out of time. Okay, so I've actually had this one before, the salty caramel. Palate cleanse. Fire-toasted sugar with sea salt, vanilla, and grass-grazed milk. A perfect balance of salty and sweet. New spoon, and here we go. This is the salty caramel, and I know I'm going to like it because I've had it before. Ooh, it's got that really nice caramel-like color, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. See, the thing is, I have a special report coming up here. <laughs> then dinner, a little birthday dinner. I don't want to, like, have a stomach ache and spoil my appetite. But my mom's not here to tell me that, so here's another bite. Mmm, that is so good. Okay, um... I'll be bringing that home for sure. Okay, so that one's a hit. This one is called Brown Butter Almond Brittle, which is very promising. Brown Butter Almond Candy Crushed into Buttercream Ice Cream. Yep, I'm liking the sound of it. All right. Opening it up. Oh, it looks so good, too. Oh, and you can see some of that. Almond stuff in there. This is a very white ice cream base here for an extremely white person. So maybe that is appropriate. All right, ready? Oh, I forgot to change spoons. I just realized. You know what? That's fine. The science has changed. I just got the memo. The science has officially changed as of 20 seconds ago. So it's fine. Okay, here we go. Ooh. That crunch. Oh, this is my favorite one so far. Oh, why? You're going to have to come take this away from me. There's going to be a problem. Hang on. I'm having one more bite because it's my birthday. Oh, yeah. What is this one again? Brown butter almond brittle. Gosh, what do people pay for this stuff? Like, I don't want to. I don't want to bankrupt myself on ice cream, but that one might be worth it. Okay. So this next one, several of you wrote in to me about this flavor because I took 
a photo of the ice creams, actually Wyatt took it and sent it to me. And I put it out on my Twitter feed and on my Instagram story, and multiple people came and sent me notes and messages saying, oh, you're going to love the gooey butter cake. Notice that butter is a, a theme, a theme here. I'm sure that I don't, I'm not looking at calorie counts. I'm just not doing it. Not today, Satan. Not on my birthday, but gooey butter cake. People were like, guy, you were going to love this. Here's how they describe it. Cream cheese ice cream. So it's a similar base to the, uh, the bagel one. Layered with crumbles of vanilla cake and a swirl of caramel butterscotch sauce. Okay, this one's definitely a little melty. So let's get to it. Oh. Okay. Sorry, I'm trying to scoop this so I don't. Oh, it tastes, it almost tastes like you're eating the cake, but it's just ice cream. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good, too. I like the crunch of the other one better, but this one, all right, you guys were right. Those of you who told me about gooey butter cake, you were right. All right, that's five. Do we have one more? One more. Five down, one to go. We are creating, we are creating quite a mess here. All right, hang on, I need one more. One more sip of the Coke Zero here to uh, <clears throat> prepare my palate. Because, again, we're, we're doing this. We take this extremely seriously. You know, we talk about the things that matter on this program, like ice cream. You can't even see me eating it. You have to listen to me eating ice cream on my birthday. I really hope this is as entertaining for you as it is for me. This is highly entertaining for me, but I'm the one who also gets to eat the ice cream. All right. Last but not least, from Jenny's is, oh, coffee with cream and sugar. Intelligentsia coffee steeped in cream, the sweet, complex flavor and robust aroma of freshly brewed coffee shines through. Wyatt is a big coffee guy. He's hoping that I don't like this flavor so he can take it home. I can tell. All right, I'm going to do one more fresh spoon if I can get the thing off of it, which I can't because my... My hands are too sticky and slippery now. Okay, I got it. Crisis averted. Final one, the coffee variety called coffee with cream and sugar. I like coffee-flavored things. I don't like really coffee itself. So I'm anticipating liking this. Yeah, it's good. That's just an intense, intense coffee flavor. So it's, I would say it's, in the upper echelon of coffee-flavored ice creams that I've had. All right, it's time to rank these, just in case you care. So Wyatt's going to hold these up. I would say, with all due respect, at the bottom of the list, it is the Everything Bagel ice cream. It is definitely interesting to taste, but not for me. So that's five. Number four is the Savannah Buttermint, just because I don't really like mint in ice cream. So that's not their fault. It's just my own personal taste. I would say the coffee ice cream comes next. That's number four. Number three is gooey butter cake. Number two is salty caramel, which I thought was going to be my favorite because I've had it before and I really like it. And number one is brown butter almond brittle. That stuff is very addictive. And I'm going to instruct, not ask, I'm going to instruct Wyatt to take all of this away from me. Because I'll just sit here getting ready for a special report. And I'll probably spill on myself. I'll forget the topics. I'll be a giant mess with Brett Baer. And you can't do that. 
Got to bring your A game with Brett. Thank you, Jenny's Ice Cream, for this ice cream. Thank you for sending me six different varieties of your flavors and allowing us to have this fun. On my birthday, it worked out really well. And while you haven't changed my position on the Everything Bagel ice cream, admittedly, uh, I hope that this was still an enjoyable radio segment for your PR department. And again, this was not an ad. We just, they sent us ice cream. We ate it on the air. Happy birthday to me. Catch you on Special Report, as I mentioned, coming up in the next hour, right after 6.40 or so p.m. Eastern time, right back here on the radio. Same time, same place. No ice cream, though. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.